Welcome to a special edition of the development podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Ntombi Siwale. This is the final episode recapping the World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. This year's discussions took place as the world tackled overlapping crisis and conflicts. But in today's show, we'll look to the future and hear from leaders, innovators, and change makers who are taking action to put people at the heart of recovery. How the COVID-19 pandemic brought unprecedented challenges for education. Even if you had connectivity, teachers were not prepared to, to teach and learners were not prepared to learn, even though we thought we had them connected. Remote learning is available, but if you don't have connectivity, you will not be able to reach uh, any type of uh, remote learning. Tanzania's plan for health, education and skills. The challenge is uh, we have done very well on infrastructure, but now to improve the quality of uh, the services which are given to the people. And how to build a better, more resilient future. So what are we going to do differently? And I think that this is the question now for us to rethink education and to have a rebirth of the way the future, the next generation, are going to have education. All that and more in this edition of the Development Podcast. Education, health, social protection, jobs and gender equality. These are critically important areas for investment that enable people to reach their full potential. Building this human capital is vital for sustaining economic growth, creating more equitable societies, and preventing the next generation from falling into poverty. But with devastating blows, such as conflict, climate change, and the COVID-19 pandemic, these pillars of human capital have been challenged in unprecedented ways. Losses to learning over the past two years, plus impediments to health care and to gender equality, could have a long-term impact on prosperity in many parts of the world. So, how are leaders responding to these issues and building back resilience for human capital? David Malpas President of the World Bank Group spoke to the President of the United Republic of Tanzania, Her Excellency Samia Suluhu Hassan. President Samia is the first female president of her country and is a powerful agent and voice for change. She is a champion for gender equality and economic empowerment for women and girls. In addition, she has reset Tanzania's response to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, including access to effective COVID-19 vaccines. She outlined her vision for Tanzania's education system. First of all, we are offering free education for all, at least from pre-primary to primary and secondary education. And uh, we have made a stride in 2015. We were at 80%, 80%, and we are almost at 95.5%. 5%. So we are going to 100% enrollment and it's free for all boys and girls. And then uh, talking of secondary schools, we are continuing the free education and most of our kids go to secondary school. But then we have created a fund whereby when they go to universities, they have to borrow money from that fund, go for the education. And then they are paying back when they get employed. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, whether self-employment or they get employed somewhere. That's when they are paying back. And we have done so knowing that um, if we leave or we left the burden of uh, educating those kids in, uh, in, uh, in universities, the parents couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. So we have created a fund. But then in, uh, in the same way in education, you remember we had a ban of adolescent mothers to go back to school. Mm -hmm. And now we have uh, lifted that ban. Now the adolescent mothers, the dropouts, whether boys or girls, uh, adolescent mothers or not, they are free to go back to school to complete the education, at least at the primary level. But some of them, they are doing good. We have a very good example in Zanzibar where this ban was lifted long ago and most of the uh, adolescent mothers went back to school and now they are completing their uh, university education. So we thought we should give that um, privilege to the adolescent mothers and the dropouts. But then on, the, uh, on health, we have done well, still we are having uh, um, challenges, but our policy is health for all, and we have tried hard. We have different segments of health service. We have the village level, then uh, ward level, district level, uh, regional level, then national referral level. So we have done well from the district, regional referral. We have tried, but then we are now concentrating on the village level because we learned it from COVID. Uh, we need to have the first aid, first treatment down to the village. Mm -hmm. So now we are concentrating on the uh, village level of where we have done about, you know, Tanzania is having about 12,300 villages. And uh, before my time, we have built around five to 6,000 centers health centers at the village level. The challenge is uh, we have done very well on infrastructure, but now to improve the quality of uh, the services which are given to the people. Who provides the health care at that village level? Uh, the government, of course. Uh -huh. Yeah, the government. A nurse, uh, are, do doctors travel through? How does it the, break down? The, the, they call them the assistant medical officers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. they are doing the, the services down to the village. And of course, every uh, dispenser is having two nurses plus a medical doctor, assistant mm -hmm. medical doctor. And do they look at ch nutrition? Will they identify children that are yes. that are either undernourished yes. or have the incorrect uh, yes. vitamins and so on? Yes. Yeah, because we are starting um, giving service to the mothers when they are pregnant. Make sure they all have folic acids, uh, mm -hmm. avoid pneumonia, uh, 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 anemia, and so that they can give birth to healthy babies. When the babies are born, we take all the necessary measures, vaccination, checking whether they are disabled or not. And that used to be a big problem in Tanzania, the, the, the childbirth complications. Yes. Is it, but the, the, can that improve the situation rapidly? Um, because it, we're talking about a nine-month period or a, a, mm -hmm. a one-year period mm -hmm. before birth. How do, how's that going? We have improved. We have improved because uh, five, years, uh, five years back, mm -hmm. we were talking of, let's say, 120 deaths per 100,000 uh -huh. for babies, uh -huh. zero to one years. Uh, and now we are talking of about 27. Oh, 
Only so 27. So an 80% improvement yes, or a yes, cut in, yes. the, which is huge. And this is because we are taking care of the pregnant mother and then we are giving necessary services when the child is, is, is being born. Yeah, we are still struggling with uh, maternal mortality. Mm -hmm. We have reduced it a great deal, but the numbers are still not acceptable. What do you find are the challenges in the both in education and in health? Is it a fiscal? Is it the amount of money, or is it to train the personnel, or is it imports that are? What What are the biggest challenges? I think it's a mixture. In education, the challenge was the acceptance of parents to send the kids to school. Ah, uh -huh. Yeah, because especially girls. Yes, especially girls. Uh -huh. And in some societies, the, the hard keepers, the livestock keepers, they prefer their kids to go for herding yeah. rather than going to school. So we had to educate the parents to accept sending their kids to school. But number two challenge was infrastructure, the um, lack of class, classrooms. But now we have done, we are, we are done with that. We are still having shortages, but not as much as it was before. The third challenge is the number of teachers. Be able to employ teachers, which would be enough for every school in the whole country. That was our challenge. Is there a qualification standard or is that important? The, the quality of the teacher, how do you think about that? The quality of the teachers, yes, but uh, we are taking on the quality of the teachers in science subjects. Mm -hmm. That's where we are struggling. Mm -hmm. The art subjects, we are having enough. Mm -hmm. The challenge with the art subject is the capacity of the government to employ more teachers. But for the science subjects, yes, we are still struggling, training more science subject mm -hmm. teachers. Yeah, we are working on that. And do you find, our, is there a difference between women teachers and men teachers as far as effectiveness? Yeah. Which way? Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, the health and education sector employs more women uh -huh. than men. Uh -huh. So we are having more female teachers than male in numbers. Also in health sector, we're having more uh, female nurses than men. But when you go up to the doctors, mm -hmm. doctors, we're having more male doctors than female doctors. Well, someday so, maybe those yeah. can balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is because when we were moving to our education, uh, former, stream of, uh, former stream of education, girls kept on dropping, yeah. yeah kept on dropping. They were not much on science subjects than men. Yeah. But nowadays, that, that gap has been reduced. And, and we find if girls are educated, uh, given the chance, they do very well oh, in yes. math and science. Oh, yes. Um, I know you've been a big promoter of girls' education and yes. also uh, uh, countering gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. How is that going and what are the obstacles uh, to that? I mean, is it educating the society not to allow it or what what's most effective yeah you know before the gender-based education we had both we had the legal frameworks and then we had education but then uh, with the legal frameworks most of those who are victims of gender-based uh, violence wouldn't like to go for legal frameworks mm -hmm. would like them to fix things at home. So we go for education. And education, I think we, we started wrongly by educating women only. But now we have realized that both have to be educated. 
men and women. Uh -huh. The gender-based violence is neither good for men mm -hmm. nor for women. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we are conducting, the NGOs, the civil society organizations, are conducting training for all of them. Yeah. That's, a, that's an important insight. Yes. That the, I, I mean, it's obvious when you say it yes. that, uh, that men are part of the problem and mm -hmm. have to be educated yes. and, and brought forward along. You're doing a remarkable job and we're looking for ways to expand our program and I'm particularly mm -hmm. happy to hear about the progress Great. in education, mm -hmm. in health and uh, gender-based violence. These mm -hmm. are all key to the future of yes. Tanzania. Yes. Um, thank you very thank much. David Malpas, World Bank Group President, in conversation with Tanzania's President, Samir Suluhu Hassan. You're listening to the Development Podcast with me, Ntombi Siwali, exploring human capital at the crossroads. Namaste, I'm Shilpa in New Delhi. Fofo, I'm Muslim Sidi Mohammed in Niamey, Niger. Hello, Luyumi, everyone. I am Leisande in Port Vila, Vanuatu. Hello, I'm Pirom Kov in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I am Mampumza Estar in Uganda. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. The World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. The pandemic paused the education of tens of millions globally. Learning to get back on track and accelerate progress is therefore a global priority. Tackling learning poverty is a crucial component to building a country's human capital and to give children the best start in life. So how to build all this in an increasingly fragile world and how to tackle the problems raised by the pandemic to create a better framework for the future? Rachel Akufon, Yahoo Finance anchor and moderator, put all this to a distinguished panel. Malala Yousafzai is co-founder of the Malala Fund, the youngest ever Nobel laureate and a tireless advocate for a girl's right to education. Amina Mohammed, Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. Marie Pangestu is the Managing Director of Development Policy and Partnerships at the World Bank. You know, we've never had such a situation in the world where you had long global lockdown of schools. The average is 286 days that schools were closed down. And in some regions like South Asia, it's very high. It's like 480 days. So that's a year to a, almost two years of kids not being in school. So the learning losses uh, are, are something that uh, will be the big challenge. And uh, the uh, impact of not going to school and uh, loss of uh, learning is also unequal in its impact, affecting young children the most, uh, as well as those in poorer households and those who are not connected. You know, to the extent that remote learning is available, but if you don't have connectivity, uh, you will not be able to, to reach uh, any type of uh, remote learning. UNICEF estimates that 31% of school children could not uh, access any kind of uh, remote learning. Uh, so these are uh, the challenges, and it translates into a lost decade of development, and you can actually put a number to it, which is $17 trillion worth of lost earnings. And that's 14% of the world GDP. How can we address this? We need swift and urgent action. First of all, get kids back to school. 
because we also know there has also been a high dropout rates. Uh, kids not coming back to school, even as schools opening up, especially girls. Uh, and this happened uh, with the Ebola crisis, where uh, less girls came back to school. So we've got to create uh, the incentives for uh, kids to come back to school and stay in school. Uh, especially girls. Incentives, uh, combine it with school meals, um, uh, making sure, uh, like in Brazil, we're working with the Brazilian government to, to sort of have a check system, a survey system, uh, to understand where, uh, when kids are not coming back to school and, and finding uh, how to get them back to school. And creating safe schools for, for girls is, is very important. Second, how do you regain the learning losses? And it's not just the one or one and a half years of not going to school that's lost. It, they've also forgotten what they learned. So this accelerated learning recovery really needs a, a focus in terms of the programs that we need to design, the teachers that we need to train to be able to have the tools and resources uh, to address this. And then third, as we are addressing the learning uh, recovery, uh, we should also be addressing what we need to change uh, for the more medium term uh, education issues. The core skills, how do we get teachers uh, to be trained, and we are also looking at what we call school beyond walls, the important role of parents and communities as well uh, in the learning. And, and you know, the whole digital divide, uh, we need to address uh, how, to, how uh, the remote learning and using digital and connectivity is very important. And as you mentioned, this really is a holistic approach that needs to be taken, a real wake-up call, obviously, with COVID building on what was already happening in the yes. education system. Um, Malala, I want to bring you in here because in some regions and contexts, very few students are able to read. How do we address this? And what special considerations are needed from a gender and fragility context? In this time, education advocates need to take the issue of the quality of education more seriously. We know that when children enroll into schools, there's also the issue of what they learn in their classrooms. So it's the access to education, but also the quality of education that are important. We know that uh, there is also the element of gender in it. Girls do outperform boys in, uh, in arts and, and, and they're also catching up on maths as well. Uh, but if we look at you know, the averages, averages only tell us half, of, uh, half the story. Uh, we need to dig deeper into this and look at how girls from marginalized, from low-income communities are more impacted, they're less likely to excel in these uh, academic subjects. Uh, and, and there's also the issue of, um, of, of crisis. When external crisis hit uh, an economy, girls are usually the first ones to drop out and the last ones to return to their classrooms. This pandemic has taught us that we need to consider education beyond just a classroom and, and think about how we can use digital platforms as tools for education. This is an urgent issue. This is a crisis that needs to be addressed sooner. And as you mentioned there, in terms of, of COVID-19, I mean, I want to bring you in here because we know that COVID-19 has been the biggest setback to human capital in living memory. What are the unique impacts on young people and what are the key priorities to get back on track? Okay, thank you very much. And it's great to be with uh, Malala and with Mary um, on a subject that is so important in us taking advantage of the recovery. And, and it, is, it is about the socioeconomic recovery. Um, from COVID, and, and now we have another exacerbating crisis with the war in Ukraine. Um, I think, you know, Mary has spoken to really the facts and figures um, for the learning losses. 
Um, and I think that that's, you know, something that we really need to think about is that they were there before COVID. We were having children dropping out. We were having many who couldn't read or write. I mean, we have had this situation for decades. So what are we going to do differently? And I think that this is the question now for us to rethink education and to have a rebirth of the way the future, the next generation are going to have education. The learning losses showed us that even if you had connectivity, teachers were not prepared to, to teach and learners were not prepared to learn, even though we thought we had them connected. And I think that those lessons um, are important that we invest um, in the capacities uh, for, for, uh, for knowledge and for learning to happen and for the right skill sets for that individual uh, to contribute A, to themselves, but B, to the community and the society at large. Um, many of the learning losses were compounded by many issues, not just not having access to education, but remember we did the school feeding around the world to make sure that at least that one square meal um, happened and we, we got better nutrition. We lost that, not just in, in the global south, but even in the global north. Um, but we also, I think, learned uh, very quickly um, that uh, the, 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 the importance of um, the curriculum itself um, and I think that when we are thinking forward and rebirthing education, that we will need to give a lot more thought to what is education for. And we cannot have this cookie cutter where in every country we aspire to one norm, which may not work for us. Um, my greatest concern for what has happened during this time with young people and, and really listening to them when I visited Costa Rica, a girls school there and just listened to the young girls, was in fact the mental health dimension to this. Um, you know, the head is on the body. And, and we often talk about the health of the body, but we don't talk about the health of the head. And, and we are one. Um, and as they came out of this, the anxiety that they had, uh, the depression that set in, the, the lack of uh, connect human interaction that was missing uh, from the new classroom. And in fact, uh, with the crises that not being able uh, to deal with an, a what happens next? What is my future about? How am I going to connect with it? Uh, can I catch up? Will I be left behind? Um, and I think that these um, in crisis situations, in normal situations, are all going to come in the aftermath of as we try to get back on track. And so for us um, at the United Nations, working with partners in the country level, the uh, transforming education conversation has to happen at the local level. And we should take this as an advantage in trying to build back better. So when we speak to the investments that are needed in trying to achieve the 2030 agenda and the SDGs, we've got to do it differently um, and perhaps make good on all the promises that we've had um, for, uh, for young people, uh, for communities, for countries, that education truly is the foundation, truly is the cornerstone. There is a silver lining there, but it's about being very clear um, on the steps um, and acknowledging COVID just opened up, um, you know, and made more urgent for us to get um, a, a response and to get it um, in, with a sense of urgency. Education can't wait. It really can't. Um, and uh, girls are, are at the forefront of losing that. Or that's half your population. Uh, we cannot be without, you know, half our population. This doesn't work. Maybe finally, I would say we, we have spoken about not leaving anyone behind. I'm really, really concerned about the number of boys and young men we're leaving behind. In the end, women and girls have to live in a society with boys and men. And, and this needs to be a place where the next generation does this together. So while we catch up with the girls, I still want us to remember that there are many boys that are falling out and that's not good for girls 
or, uh, uh, you know, men and women as we go forth. And we do have just a few minutes left. I mean, I do want to get your take here. UNICEF, UNESCO and the World Bank releasing a report on learning loss that you described as an urgent wake up call. What message do you want to share with ministers of education or finance about investments in education? I think the first thing to do is to remind everyone that education is a human right. It's fundamental and, and every government, head of state and government after security is education. Education cannot be a trade-off. It is fundamental to everything. And I think that if we can have education ministers um, seeing in, uh, education as an investment in, in the human being, the person, the citizen, the society, uh, then we have a mindset change. Here again, I would say the ministers of education have to stop sitting and talking in a silo. Education matters to everything, just as we say women's rights do, so that they see the value of it. Um, and that when you're around a cabinet table, which I have been, um, that you're not just talking about the education agenda as though it is not a part of every other um, agenda. So both the finance minister and ministers of education will have to have that conversation and bring it to the center um, of economic growth so that you understand that GDP, the quality of which cannot be without education. You know, it's taken decades for us to do this. What is stopping us? We cannot possibly think that we're going to grow any, um, any nation, any people without the very basics. So we have an opportunity now. Every um, domestic budget has to put aside resources for basic services and rights. That is education, that is health, that is water and sanitation. So here I would say you know, to our colleagues in the finance community that we've got to think about how we leverage the growth of economies where the returns actually pay for these for the education for health um, and, and are not seen as something we have to go borrow for um, and until we get that we are not going to be talking about all people leaving no one behind we will only be talking about the elite and certain sections of society so i think you know this conversation of transformation of education has to begin with policymakers. Um, and they have to be measured against whether they have an educated population or not, and that that education fits the person and fits the society, and therefore the, that that nation can join uh, the Committee of Nations as an equal partner. And Mari, we have about a minute left, but I, uh, I want to get your take on how you see investing in people catalyzing a greener, more resilient, inclusive development, and how perhaps digital technologies and youth aspirations factor into this. So I think investing in human capital is key for development and also for inclusiveness. So whether it's making sure girls can get to school, making sure that no one is left behind, and a holistic approach uh, on human capital. It's education, it's health, it's food and nutrition, it's the ability to be connected uh, in a digital way. Uh, so these, it has to be a holistic uh, approach and it has to be the priority for the country because it is about longer term development, including green, resilient and inclusive development. Uh, I think uh, we are in a situation where we had a lot of adolescents, boys and girls dropping out of school in a, in a slow growth environment. So so the issue of uh, being able to employ youth, I think, is going to be a, a very a big global problem. So how do we design uh, skills upgrading uh, to be able to have these youth be able to either find jobs or to become entrepreneurs? And I think digital connectivity is, is one of the key issues. But the fact is we have a digital divide still. 2.9 billion people are still not connected. Uh, and it's, it's much higher in Africa. So it's about uh, the connectivity. And once you're connected, dig digital literacy, what 
what do you do to get value added from it and then to also really make them inclusive as part of, of the education and the job opportunities and the entrepreneur. So it has to be combined with uh, also the ability to access markets, access finance and so on. Rochelle Akufo speaking to Mary Pangestu, Managing Director of Development Policy and Partnerships, World Bank. Malala Yousafzai, co-founder of the Malala Fund, and to Amina Mohammed, UN Deputy Secretary General. So how can young people best equip themselves for the jobs of the future? Rochelle Akufo asked Beatrice Mahuru, the founder and CEO of GLAD and BNWE in Papua New Guinea, where she feels the skills gap needs to be addressed. Beatrice is a business leader and passionate advocate for women and girls in the workforce. Beatrice, you support young people as they develop the technical and soft skills necessary to realize their potential. What would you say are the most in-demand or in-need soft skills? You know, amazingly in Papua New Guinea with over uh, 1,000 different languages and 800 different cultures, communications is a core soft skill that's required to get them through their day-to-day lives. They are living in a world where technology is fast-paced, but they come from communities where time stands still. So communications is an in-need skill. I think adaptability, therefore, is also critical for them in uh, moving ahead. Conflict resolution is definitely one of those uh, soft skills that's required, uh, both to manage uh, workplace conversations as well as their communities back at home. And I feel very strongly, therefore, um, critical thinking is another soft skill that's necessary for youth of today, particularly here in Papua New Guinea. Well, we hope that provides food for thought and a dose of inspiration. That's it for this special collection of the development podcast, giving you a taster of the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings 2022. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these programs or on any of our other podcasts. Send us an email with your comments, questions, and ideas. That address is the development podcast at worldbank.org. We'll be back with more stories, data, and analysis from the World Bank Group and its staff around the globe. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ntombi Siwale, and the producer is Sarah Trinidad.